Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's a Team Human Live coming up at the Unfinished Live Festival in New York City on September 23rd and 4th at The Shed, which is uh, on the Green Line. It's this big new kind of cool space on the Green Line in New York City. And yes, Team Human members, Patreon subscribing members for $2 a month or more, they get to come to this thing for free. Yeah, it's got really good people. Casey Newton, Vivian Schiller, our friend Amelia Winger Bearskin, Robert Reich, uh, Gavin Wood, Hamish McKenzie. It's a $100 ticket, yo. And if you're a Team Human member, you get to come for free. I'm not sure who's going to be the guest. Someone from the conference I'm hoping to get, but I don't want to say it to jinx it. Uh, so join Team Human, plus you get all the other stuff. You get access to the Discord channel and special events and the the Team Human live salons that we're doing with guests after they've been on the show and uh, weekly or or the every other weekly uh, Team Human bonus content, you know, the interviews and conversations from the vault with people like Timothy Leary and Joanna Harcourt-Smith and Naomi Klein. And there's a, a Joe Biden one I'm trying to put together for you, too, from the early 2000s. I mean, he was a senator then, but he was actually kind of interesting. It's fun to listen to that. So all this cool stuff, you can join wonderful Team Human members like Vivian Mar. Martel, Felix Castro, Ryan Chitwood, Duncan Slobodzian, and Heather Forrester. Thank you all so much for supporting Team Human. Our ranks are growing, and there's wonderful conversations happening on the Discord, and people getting together, even masked and sometimes unmasked, in real life. So join, go to teamhuman.fm, and click on support, and get all this cool stuff, and... I'd love to see you soon. Yo.
you're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge ourselves to develop a comportment appropriate to the occasion of our own and one another's incarnation. We are embodied, at least for a time, so let's make the most of this opportunity by finding the others and engaging with them as if they mattered even more to us than we do to ourselves, because they really are just us. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, professor of philosophy and Jewish thought at the University of Denver, as well as my soft and squishy friend, Dr. Sarah Pessin. We need to comport ourselves to one another in an open way that looks to a future that has more justice than the present. Pessin will be helping us learn to treasure the great in-between, the living delightfully incomplete and always never quite thereness of our collective human journey. There's always enough slack to go around. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been reading all the critique lately, and everybody seems to hate the CDC these days. After telling vaccinated people in May that we could go maskless, they reversed course this month, instructing everyone to now mask up wherever, quote, the virus is spreading rapidly. So one day we're almost completely immune to the virus, and the next day we're now subjected to the new variant, which is really a few months old, that actually spreads among immunized people as readily as the chickenpox. And at the same time, the CDC director, she tells us that the only reason for vaccinated people to wear masks is to protect the unvaccinated. It's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, she explained. And that's a line that was apparently deemed rhetorically fit enough for the president to repeat it at every press conference he's at. And whenever there are these reversals or clarifications from the CDC, everybody jumps on the inconsistencies. You know, Twitter leads the way, but the really the entire media sphere goes on the attack. And conspiracy theorists hatch new plots to explain what's really going on. And fearful patients and parents blame the CDC for having put everyone in harm's way. Anti-maskers cry foul. And even our most respected science journalists, they can't help but critique the CDC's initial analyses and recommendations because now they've got the benefit of a bunch of new information that the CDC didn't even have at the time. I understand all the aggravation, but it's way too easy to attack the CDC for mishandling this whole thing when they're actually being charged with both solving the pandemic and communicating effectively to the American people. You'd think being totally transparent about the science would be the appropriate strategy, but this may not be the case. When the CDC told vaccinated people that they didn't have to wear masks, the science was definitely correct. Masks are way more about protecting other people from our spit than protecting the wearer from aerosol particles of the virus. But since the primary and effective purpose of surgical masks has always been to contain the user's germs, the idea that vaccinated people could forego wearing masks, that made sense. From a behavioral standpoint, it seemed to make sense, too, since the privilege of going maskless might actually encourage more people to get vaccinated. So the science was true, but the recommendation may have been wrong for a real world in which unvaccinated people were all refusing to wear masks and, and were indistinguishable from people who were vaccinated taking them off for the first time. 
So there's there's really the rub. The things the CDC says, they're not mere reporting after the fact. They're making recommendations that some people follow and some people abuse and other people resist just on impulse. So propaganda, it isn't just about changing what people believe or understand. It's about changing what people actually do. And this, I fear, is where the CDC and our medical authorities may be in over their heads. Shortly after the CDC began recommending vaccines for 12 to 18-year-olds, some reports started trickling out of Israel, showing that a small number of teen boys were developing myocarditis after getting injections. And the CDC stayed quiet on it, even after some journalists were sounding the alarm. And by the time the CDC announced the the link between the vaccine and myocarditis, you know, it was it was old news and the public's trust level was further eroded. You know, why did they wait so long? What else are they hiding? Maybe that guy on Facebook who says vaccinations turn us into chimpanzees, maybe he's telling the truth. The CDC, I'm guessing they delayed making a statement about it because of the debacle they'd just been through after halting administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, pending a review of some reports of thrombosis in women. The shot was eventually like cleared of all charges, but then it was too late. Nobody wanted the J&J vaccine after it had been unpaused. And even the other vaccines then were met with more fear and trepidation. So the CDC is reluctant to tell people about possible incidents of myocarditis. You know, they don't want to frighten us or increase vaccine hesitancy and in turn lead to more spread of the virus. So it's not that they're lying to us as a public so much as trying to manage us like they'd manage a patient. There's this thing in medicine, they call it uh, patient compliance. You know, will they take all their medicine? Will they stop smoking? Will they do the painful but necessary rehab exercise? So when the CDC communicates something to the public, you know, they're doctors. They're not just thinking about telling us the truth, but they're considering how the information they're releasing will influence our behavior, which will in turn change the course of the pandemic. It's, it's a feedback loop. There's this great quote from uh, Jen Cates of the Kaiser Family Foundation to the New York Times, where she says, What's happening is this real-time public health messaging in a pandemic around data that's just emerging. That is just the reality, and that doesn't necessarily provide comfort or always the kinds of answers that people understand. Right? Real-time public health messaging. So that's what I wrote about back in 2013 in this book, Present Shock. I was trying to show how in the digital media environment, everything's happening at once. So the CDC may be releasing messaging about newly published data after people on Twitter have already responded to the pre-published version, all while trying to anticipate how their messaging might change people's behavior and the course of the disease through our society. So that's a pretty complex communication task, even for seasoned public relations specialists. But for a group of, what are they, epidemiologists, whatever we call them, I'd venture that's impossible. Walter Lippmann, you know, the father of public relations, I think 
he may have been right. You know, perhaps a council of experts should be determining the best, most scientifically grounded path forward. But then a totally separate group of people, the public relations specialists, they have to be in charge of what Lippmann called manufacturing consent for those policies. The assumption in that case would be that we regular people can't quite handle the truth. I'm not sure I agree with that sentiment, but boy, I'd sure love to live in a world where I don't necessarily need to understand the whole truth about everything. I I do like making decisions for myself, but I also like having an auto mechanic or a financial advisor or a school principal who I can trust to apply their expertise in my best interest so I don't have to know everything myself. You know, I open my mouth, give me the filling, dentist. I don't need to know whether you're using a clockwise rotation of your drill or a counterclockwise and what that means. You know, the CDC, they can't both do everything right and manage a real-time communications challenge of this magnitude in such a hostile environment. I, I honestly believe the best thing we can do moving forward is ask ourselves how every article we write, every post we like, or every sentence we tweet, how it impacts the communications environment in which we are all enmeshed. And those poor folks at the CDC who are now so busy second-guessing everything they say lest to trigger one of our attacks. A little bit of slack right now goes a whole long way. I'm so glad I get to share the following conversation with you. It's with my dear, dear friend and co-mentor, Sarah Pesson, who's a professor at the University of Denver in officially in philosophy. And I don't know, I didn't think philosophy worked like this, but it does. Sarah's a, a brilliant person. She's a scholar of, of Levinas, most specifically, but all sorts of philosophers going back uh, to, to medieval times. And she brings a a, a passion to this work and a passion for people, for, for applying the insights of these great thinkers. I hate to call them thinkers. These great embodied spirits, these embodied souls who've walked among us for the last couple of thousand years and applying it to our, our challenges as, as individuals and collectives and a civilization trying to navigate a path towards something a bit more compassionate with and responsible for one another for all of our benefit. So um, this is what it's like uh, when I'm on the phone with my dear, dear friend, Sarah Pesson. Sarah Pesson, welcome and thanks for being on Team Human. Thank you so much. I'm excited. For background, I guess. So I met you, I believe, when I was on the tour for Present Shock. I believe that to be true. 
in a lecture hall at University of Denver? Yes, that much I know to be true. That's actually a good a good trailhead for us. So Present Shock, which to me in, in most ways is still my kind of most important work, my most important thing, was really about the weird existential panic that comes, or came to me anyway, from this feeling of presentism, what digital was doing to me and pulling me out of time. But the the hardest part of it, and this is something that was why I liked theater so much and experimental theater was, wait a minute, this big Aristotelian narrative of beginning, middle and end, this big thing that me and my people and whoever we've been pushing towards, whether it's the messianic age or the revolution or the big pie in the sky dream, this is all crazy talk that that there is no place to go, that that this is it. We're here. We're here, and this is so scary, but but could actually open us up into a good, uh, uh, whether it's you know what whatever we want to label it, it can it can open us up to a much more, uh, uh, I don't want to say even positive, but a, a deeper, richer experience of everything around us. And it seemed that you responded to some of that, but you actually um, took it in a whole and me in a whole other direction from that from that kind of starting place. So I guess, I mean, the, the first thing I'm interested in is, is how did you, uh, or did you, but how did you give up on this whole driving towards a thing thing? You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, um, so I, you know, I work in philosophy and that's sort of my discipline and by, by definition, therefore it's very sort of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, all those good things just because, you know, philosophy is a study of whatever else you're studying. So uh-huh. it gets very meta and it also looks at lots of stuff. But um, uh, the kind of philosophy that I always gravitate towards over the years. And I've sort of studied all kinds of stuff from uh, ancient Greek to uh, medieval uh, Jewish and Islamic to mystics to, uh, you know, contemporary post-colonial theory and, and, and um, anti-racist uh, work. And I, I, I sort of, you know, connected a, a lot of pieces, but I always find in all of those different philosophical systems and and discourses, the thing that I'm always drawn to is kind of the the sort of the way of interrogating the space of the self. In some respects, that itself is already I'm putting scare I'm putting air quotes around that <laughs> uh, um, just because philosophers that I tend to gravitate towards tend to really not like talking about the self in because that sounds too there there. Uh, but I right. use the word self as a placeholder just to say whatever we are is not <laughs> like a ball, right? And you know it's not like a it's not like a it's not like a piece of you know it's not like a piece of chalk, right? Like it's not a thing. Um, even though our lo- our language talks about us as if we're a thing, it's not really anything like a thing, and it's also not even like. Because like when we get good at it, we say, oh, okay, we're not like a piece of chalk, but we're like an invisible, much shinier piece of chalk that's more like <laughs> rounded. And that's right. like how we think about whether the soul or consciousness or mind or astral bodies or whatever we tend to want to replace with the piece of chalk. 
It's still a thing. It's just an abstract, like a, 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 it might be a Tasmanian devil swirling thing or a shiny thinking nebulous soul thing, floaty thing, disembodied thing. thing. It's a floaty (laughs) thing. Although of the ones that you said, one of them stands out. That's going to take me in the direction of sort of where you where where we were just starting a minute ago, the Tasmanian devil one. That's the one that I like because it's dis, it's unlike the other stuff. The other stuff, the shiny stuff, the sparkly stuff, the woo. It's like a big puffy like cloud thingy. What those all still have in common is like. I do this whenever I talk to myself. Like I put my hand, I'm making a hand, like a globular shape with my hands. Yeah. Like they all are there, but see-through and shiny and very, very fluffy. But the Tasmanian devil one, that's what all the philosophers that I like have in common, which is um, kind of like the uh, classic picture or you know drawing of an atom but like a tasmanian devil there's a lot of movement right the tasmanian devil was a warner brothers cartoon character and he would spin really rapidly and he'd look like a tornado when he was moving until he got somewhere else so it's like an active thing you can't see him you can't take a picture of him you've got to see him in motion yeah right so he's constantly just swirling and moving so in a way all the philosophers that i gravitate towards even though some of them are happy to sort of use words like the human subject and some of them are like no no i don't even want to use that term I'll use the word human subjectivity, and English human subjectivity tends to mean that we're so subjective and we don't know what we're talking about, which is an interesting feature that English language reveals, a sort of disinclination to this way of thinking. But if we just say human subjectivity, which is to say like the subject marker, it's at best, in the philosophers that I like, even the ones who don't like to use the words of any kind to point to it, they all are like a Tasmanian devil sense of the self. And so there's a lock going on and it's not a thing and it's not a see-through thing and yet the very proof that there's some there there even in the whole swirl is this second like right now like this is proof right what we're doing right now like interchange communication is proof that there's something there there that's worth talking about right I mean so but what's interesting about present shock is that on the one hand, there's a kind of swirly intensity that you talk about in present shock and that you call digiphrenia and you yeah. you know and, and that that's a bad kind of Tasmanian doubling. Right. <laughs> but what I found so fascinating when I was reading your work is that you were the first thinker where I was like, oh wow, you were showing that there is a kind of Tasmanian devilness to our current moment and to the way we live, which is terrible and toxic. And yet, the antidote is a different kind of Tasmanian devil. And so it's not as if the antidote to like the the, the present shock swirl is some kind of a, and for some it is, but for me it's not, that the antidote would just be like really chilling out and just trying to like sit more. I get that, but that's, um, in case it's not clear, that's not my mode. Right, some form of withdrawal maybe, yeah. Or or not even withdrawal, just even like, you know, 
taking, you know, relaxing or I, don't, I can't even <laughs> find the words. Like whatever, some people relax, I think, or whatever. That's fine. I'm not against relaxing. I don't have that particular mode. Right. So the alternative <laughs> to the present shock is, is there's two, alter- there's a few alternatives to the present shock. One of them, which is I think the more common one, which is still very elusive and people try to do is like to tune out and like, you know, meditate and find a space and, and find a centering and sit in nature. I'm not saying those are bad things. That's lovely. That is one alternative. Right. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> right. And the other one is also nice work if you can get it, but it's like a totally different thing. And it's the thing that I'm most interested in. And we don't really have words for talking about it in our culture. It's a different mode of sort of like swirling intensity um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like meditative. It doesn't necessarily have to take place in nature. It doesn't necessarily have any of those other elements. It could, but it needn't. It's a way of sort of sort of interrogating the 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 very fact that what we are is first of all not made up of all of the gadgets that are distracting us as you teach us, but it's also not made up of anything specific that we can't maneuver. It's this complex interplay, like we can't change it completely, but it's this very mobile interchange between all of our past memories, all of our future hopes. It's such a dynamic matrix to sort of sit with Again, when you sit in a meditative space or outside under a tree, like I totally get it, that's one headspace. But a different headspace is like playing like hard rock guitar with your own reality, which is to say like your memories and your hopes. Just let's start with those two. That's what you are. You're not a piece of chalk. You're not, um, actually, Sartre says you're not a cauliflower. So that's his yeah. version of the piece of chalk. I usually yeah. say cauliflower when I think about this, but for some yeah. reason I said chalk. You're not a head of cauliflower. You're not a piece of chalk. You're not a see-through version of any of those things. And actually what you are is this huge, intense energy space of let's just say starting alone with your memories and your hopes that's big i mean as anybody who's even been through uh, uh psychotherapy even would know even on a superficial level if you change you can you can basically time travel in a certain way by adjusting the way you remember certain things. And I don't mean fooling yourself way, but like I could look back at something, oh, this thing that I did when I was nine and I look back at it and I've always seen it as when I was so naughty and so wrong and that means I'm this horrible person. And I could look back at it now and say, well, wait a minute, take those judgments off. This was, look at this weird, creative, wonderful kid trying to figure out, you know, how this thing worked by breaking it and getting in trouble. But all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, that's baby Einstein. That's not baby, you know, baby uh, uh, Charlie Manson. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. 
Right. I mean, so there's like, that's an interesting, you know, connection with psychotherapy. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly one can take it in that direction. And I see the analogy for sure, which is right. I mean, to your point, it's not about making up memories or whatever. And obviously we're not talking about that, but we're talking about like the weird machine that we are. And I hate to say that's a bad way to describe team human. team human, especially. Whoops. Whoops. Okay. Yeah. I certainly do not mean by, I mean by machine, the beautiful thing that the humans are. I'm actually retaking word machine back right. for the humans how about exactly. that and what a piece uh, of work is man yeah exactly yeah. how about the machines are chalk that's all they are so okay, we're, yeah. we're the real machines we're the more yeah. interesting ones you know I, I think it's related to present shock and it's related to also the consumerist mindsets that we've all kind of become calcified in not just in recent years but in many many years like if we if we get a new gadget we're so excited to learn the features or uh, you know oh my gosh did you see you could you can add a mustache like (laughs) we get so excited about that but like a new app it's like oh my god look you can make the whole thing red or whatever but like we're this unbelievable complex app and Again, like that's part of what psychotherapy is premised on, which is we're like this infinite well of possibility, just this infinite well of possibility on our own. And then if you add one other human into that mix, it's infinity to the infinity of power, which is a lot more creativity and power right there, much less Every time you have an interaction with another person, it singly, uh, and then uh, you know individually, or in in groups, or in larger communities, we don't think about I think ourselves as this unbelievable app. I hate to reduce it to that, right? But I guess that's sort of exciting because I mean I'll admit I'm downloading some apps about how to do I like you know make some fun collage stuff like that's exciting to me, yeah. and I'm like, but that's what philosophy is at, for me is like teaching you to see yourself as like this collage in constant construction. Not entirely by yourself. I'm not trying to say, I mean, in fact, a lot of the philosophy I'm interested in is trying to find more of a vulnerable recognition that we're not super, super men and super women who can just sort of change ourselves at will. That's not being respectful of the grab bag of memories and hopes. We don't just wake up with new memories and hopes. But like, we're this infinite constellation and i don't know that right. we take as much wonder in that as plato wants us to take when he talks about philosophy and wonder i think that's part of what he's talking about you know as i've been arguing for a long time you know being human is a team sport it's a collective activity and that for me the the even since the beginning with social media and the net and all i was always arguing that these technologies are kind of training wheels or a test run or a pretend version of the connectivity we actually have anyway. So it's like we build the internet and go, you see, this is what it's like to be connected. Now, you are connected. So you can, you can right. in many ways, you can go offline and, and enjoy each other again. But the other thing about, about the net that was so interesting to me and, and ties me back to your work, if our face-to-face engagement with one another is the gateway, right, to infinity, to experience, to understanding, to joy, to mutual ecstasy, to everything, then it seems to be that, that, that what, what I've been doing in response to that is taking my eyes off the prize, 
you know, to, to, to quote a, a great civil rights warrior, off the sort of ends justifies the means journey towards the great human revolution or renaissance, and much more onto, and this is a word I got from you, my comportment. Because if the infinity is in this, in this face-to-face, here we are, then the only impact, the only lever, the only way I can I can modulate or enhance or affect that experience is how I'm bringing myself to it. Do you know what I mean? It's and how I how I am with you is all I have to work on. In a way, right. The the comportment which is a term that I I used to help emphasize sort of the distinction between like the content versus the comportment. I I found it helpful when thinking about relationship between your work and McLuhan's to actually kind of do a little bit of a progression. So if if I'm summarizing this right, like in a McLuhan context, McLuhan moves us from thinking about content to thinking about context. Your work moves from thinking about context to thinking about contact, between right. people. And then in the conversations, um, at when I was first reading your work, I thought, wait, no, it's not just the contact. It's the comportment that we have with the contact. And then the more I read of your work, the more I realized that you're interested, of course, in that, so that it's not so much um, a revision of your view as it is a sort of, uh, sort of pulling out of something that's tacit in there. So in right. that respect, it's not just about the content. It's not just about the context. It's not even just about about the contact with the other humans, because as we all know, contact with other humans could be awful, right? I mean, that's not, given my particular family's background, I don't particularly get the general sense that, oh, it's another human, this is going to work out really well. (laughs) Like, that's not my first thought, to be honest. But there is nonetheless a kind of radical hope. It's a kind of encounter with another person that has this radical hope sense that, and to go back to your concept of time travel, there is a way that if I bring a certain responsible comportment, a sense that I owe everything to this other human, what does that mean? I don't know, but it's amazing. Right. It's not a patronizing like, oh, I'm like responsible for them as a teacher, parent, superior. It's something beneath those things, right? It's like this a poetic pulsing sense that's not about oh because right in normal english when we say you're responsible for someone it means that you better now you know do these certain things it's it's not unrelated to like what you do in the world with and for other people but it's not like uh, it's not an injunction to give up your life and 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 then do all this stuff for some random uh person it's not it's not that but it's this over-the-top poetic intensity about what the sort of concept of like an interhuman connected debt. It's not what I can do for you. It's what you can do for me, which is you can release me from the torsions of the fullness of my own being. I have too much me. (laughs) Right. But if you're going to do that, that also means when you encounter the other, you better damn well rise to the occasion. There's another there. So being responsible is almost like being responsible not to that person solely, but to the moment, 
we're here. It's like, you know, you're going to meet, you know, like for, you're going to meet Dalai Lama. You're going to meet Muhammad Ali. You're going to meet, you know, <laughs> right. and everybody is that. That's the point. We have such a culture that revolves around fame um, and celebrity. And whether it's, you know, Hollywood or whether it's spiritual leaders. So it's, it's not the, the content is not the problem, right? I mean, because you could have a great musician where I, oh my God, this is the best music ever. So I'm not worried about that. And you could have an amazing spiritual teacher where it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And this is really good for everyone. Okay, so that's the content piece. That's great. But back to comportment, we idolize people in a way which actually breaks us. We idolize people in a way such that we don't have the same, maybe this is so obvious, but to your, but it's not obvious to the way we would want to hope to experience each other, which is, it's like, oh, are you going to, are you important? No, I'm not, I'm not here. Like, right, what? You're not worth my time. You can't help my career. You right. can't help my, uh, you're not going to get, right. fuck it, move right. on, next. Right, right, but even go, <laughs> like, those are like cognitive thoughts that one might actually have, but right. like, go even to the more visceral level of like, the enthusiasm or like the unbridled, I mean, frankly, it's a kind of trembling. It's not even just, it's positive, it's negative, it's terrifying, it's like the word awesome in all of its meanings. It is filled with terror and anticipation because the whole world can open up just based on what's about to be, not just on the fact that the, the, this person might bring all kinds of new opportunities into your world, but in the sense that this person, like every person, opens you up to your own your own capacity right. to be released from yourself. And interestingly, the, the, the irony there is the people we meet in our lives, like I was talking with Duncan Trussell about when he first met Ram Dass, or, you know, for me, when I first met uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, there are these people that are very special. And we're so excited to meet them. And But then when you think about what is what is it about them that is so magical? It's that they're doing what you're saying. They're so interested in the potential for liberation or opening by meeting you that they engage with you in this way that seems so enlightened and special, like a teacher, but they're not. They're like the ultimate student coming to you for, you know, as if you're the Buddha. Look, there's a lot of different ways to take this idea that the person you meet, every person you meet is the Buddha, right? Like, right. imagine that, like, right? We don't have access to that. And that's because of the culture that we've built. In other words, I challenge everyone right now, spend five hours tomorrow. And for those five hours, truly try to imagine that everyone is the boot like that we don't even we probably couldn't even do it because we right. don't believe that at all like we just do not believe that's possible <laughs> no, they're not the boot they're an asshole they're an asshole right right we don't have the capacity <laughs> they probably right. are though they probably are an asshole right there's a whole tradition that like i think in various traditions in judaism too there's a sense that like you know the prophet elijah is whoever you don't know who it is it's like exactly so it's the same kind of idea 
Imagine that every person is somehow this opening space. And I don't mean that every person is your new best friend, which is so funny because that's one of the ways that we can translate what I'm saying. Okay, so what this woman is saying is that tomorrow I should befriend everyone I meet for the next five hours. No, who said you should befriend the Buddha? That is not an appropriate response to meeting the Buddha. Well, you're supposed to kill the Buddha when you meet him, I thought. You know what? That's a, a deep teaching, which I assume has something to do with you're supposed to disrupt open. Your entire world is supposed to collapse out from under you. You're really killing yourself in a way, in the sense of right. you're recognizing that you're an endless, bottomless pit, that you are, he is, you inside, whatever. It's this opening. The whole world opens. So the only way to, to sort of not be this big ball is in the encounter with others and even not even in the moments that we're not encountering others it's still the case to the extent that we're aware that the other people are the ones who release me who can possibly release me from my own being and that's what opens possibilities right if there's a space in which you kind of provide it's not like what you can do for me in the regular sense but it's this if i enter into the interaction with every person with a sense not like oh they're gonna give me stuff or oh i'm gonna become best friends with them those are really boring um examples but in the sense of like wow the whole reality my whole reality is somehow a reality that could not even abc if it weren't for the other people It releases us from our own sort of calcified realities and our calcified connections from our own past. So that's the real time travel. We become released from the spaces, from our own spaces that have held us in. That's what it means that you're supposed to kill the Buddha when you meet him. You're destroying entire worlds in this opening to possibility, which is what you are. Part of what makes me sad about all this is, I guess I've noticed this in myself. I've had, and I've, I've, I've spoken about it on the last few shows, that I've had some friends who've really kind of fallen prey to QAnon and real angry anti-vax conspiracy stuff and all. And the emails I'll get from other friends saying, oh my God, did you see what he just said? Look what he said here. Look what he said there. And I realized I really don't care what they say. I don't care the content. Oh, so you think vaxes are from this and that? You're going off, maybe. You're being a little, what I think might be a little crazy, but you can believe that. That's not the part that makes me sad. The part that makes me sad, the part that makes me feel like I've lost the person is the comportment, is the 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 anger and intransigence and stiffness with which they express themselves, that that certainty. It's even, I, I'm just as upset by certainty from people I agree with as certainty from people I don't. Uh, one of the most important aspects of comportment, the way that I think of it and the way that you're talking about it is a certain kind of uh, openness that, right, certainty is the is the sort of death knell of. Now that said, 
I don't, it could go too far. So in other words, if someone's just like, oh, so you're saying I shouldn't know anything, that, that would, if, if we technically took that to its extreme, that would mean that we couldn't even walk because we wouldn't know that the earth, you know, that the ground is under oh, our feet. Right? Yeah. So I mean, if we want to get over extreme and also separate from that case, it's not just about the present because there's a future. We don't know what it is, which is the key part. And so we don't want to have our eye on the prize in the sense that, right, we can't, if we have a very clear, certain sense of what's coming down the thing, that ruins everything. But yet we need to, we need to comport ourselves to one another in an open way that looks to a future that has more justice than the present. So it's not even just like, oh, I'm just going to live in the moment. Because to me, just living in the moment could actually devolve into nonsense and into also dangerous sort of lack of care for others and et cetera. Do you honestly believe we are moving toward a future with more justice than the present? I'm worried that we're doing the opposite. Uh, right. So there's okay. So there's three things. One, we should totally look to the climate change and other kinds of sciences of that sort, and not just resign ourselves to the Titanic going down. But we should be like really uh, coming up with solutions that are not going to have the Titanic go down. And I mean, I hope that there are some of those. So that's one. Uh, full stop. Two. Then in the the remaining places between the humans, there's two other buckets. One is you know, uh, to your point, even if some, even if something is equivalent to the Titanic going down, hopefully again, back to the first point, we mitigate that, et cetera, et cetera. The second point is not designed to take away from the first point, which is do everything we can to stop that from happening. But when it comes to the other humans, right, what we're doing with each other, even through horrible times, is a different time. It's a time of humans. Time is not one thing. Uh, and so you're talking about time travel. We have a lot of ways of thinking about time travel in science fiction ways where we're going through, or I don't know, maybe it's coming to science ways where we're going through wormholes in different uh, space, uh, space mobiles. Is that what they're called? Spaceships, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So we have a very, we, we get very imaginative about getting into a thing, uh, back to our cauliflower thinking, we, we're a thing, we're going to get into another thing, and we're going to go through another thing to go into the past or go into the future. But like, to your point about what we do with each other, that's the opening. Like, there's no, there's no things. It's the way we comport ourselves openly in an open space with the others, I would add with this sense that we are deeply interrelated through a responsibility and that the only way our own most potentials can even exist is through a kind of uh, is a kind of alleviation that the other already has always brought me and for whom and to whom I owe that modality for me is always at the bottom but that's not inconsistent with these playful openings the openings that we have when we speak and when we interact that's 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 time travel right there. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, as we talk about it, to me, it starts to feel like I started by talking about okay, people who have this really firm goal that they know where things are going or we want to get there, us and the prize get to there. Then there are these people who think we really came from somewhere. This God made us, created us for this reason. There's this there's a sense of an equal sense of inevitability coming from the past. Then there are these people like my friends who've gotten like too deep into Q and on or this or that who get certain about their belief. It's certain. And all of them are kind of oak tree compared to River Reed, 
ways of being, if, if, if you know what I mean. Like, I'm yeah. certain about the future. I'm certain about my past. I'm certain about what, what I believe in. Or I'm Richard Dawkins and those guys, you know, the sci- scientism believers. Who, where it's atoms, consciousness, you know, life comes from atoms. Consciousness comes from life. It's an emergent phenomenon. It's not real. All of that is, I'm sure, comforting, temporarily comforting, rock solid way of experiencing reality that if anything it impairs it it, it impedes one's ability to enter into the face-to-face infinity magic creative play space part of why i cried when i was speaking with um duncan trussell uh, is because he's like this thing it's like He's like a pond of water, and you just throw anything in it, and you see his whole body, whole soul ripple with whatever you throw. He's like, oh man, that's so cool. And it doesn't, and it's just like that's so fun to watch and be with and, and make happen. Right. But there's two contents, I guess. There's a content at the beginning, and if the comportment becomes too hardened, again, unless we're talking about physics, I get it. Like, right. But like with many other pieces, if it becomes too hardened, um, what, what scientific method is that allows for us to fly in airplanes is actually a lot, like, it's not a hardened comportment, it's actually. It's totally the opposite. It's the right. opposite, there's, right. right. There are asshole scientists, just as there are asshole spiritualists, and the the, but there's scientists like um, um, William Sofke, who I had on this show, who's a true rigorous friggin' scientist about the brain and sound and 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 all that. But he's so open and so soft and so loving. It's a different thing. One would actually have to argue that a really good scientist, even if they're an asshole on the street, has to be open in the lab. Otherwise, they're a bad scientist, right? Open, risk-taking. They're open. I mean, I imagine someone like Einstein was walking around ready to be ready to have his whole understanding of reality smashed at any moment. Yeah, that's really interesting because, right, like in some respects, like there is like what, you know, we've talked about sometimes like this scientistic kind of mindset, which just says like everything is only you know, only science and nothing else. Everything else is 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 made up. That's a that's a mistake of a of of a kind that's related to a comportment of a certain kind. But even that person, if they're a good scientist, which I'll believe they are, which is why they got so excited about atoms and whatever and and proton things in the first place. Philosophy science on scientific method is actually quite amazing in terms of the openings and the you know the notion that um, you know uh, Thomas Kuhn and paradigm. Shifts to your point that the scientist um, might. Well, it's actually interesting. It's both things. On the one hand, like you said, Einstein is maybe thinking at every minute that the whole earth can shift from under him, which I think is definitely a good trait of a scientist, as well as of a magician, as well as of a storyteller, as well as of a spiritual person. So that is like fascinating. I hadn't really ever thought about that. That science itself, like that's the that's the thing, that opening space. And yet there is then an ability to um uh, then like we have to remain open and yet like we have to 
like not remain so open that like nothing matters, right? We, yeah, we, we need float to, away into nothingness. Yeah, right. we have to have commitments. We have to fight racism. We have to fight misogyny. We have to fight. Um, we have to comport ourselves towards justice and to the question like as to whether that's realistic or not. That's a very odd question. That's what we are. We are comporting towards justice. That's what we are. And that seems what humans are different from other things. And not to say we're better, but the dog is not comported to justice. The dog's comported to other things. And that's why when I look at human beings and our special role on the planet is, yeah, we're part of nature, but we're conscious enough that together we can make nature less cruel. We can make, ah, sounds so, but we, we can shepherd reality differently than the creatures who are unconsciously just a part of it. You know, right. And some people would say, well, that's, you know, like, right, that you talk about, like, oh, that's Hubris your, or whatever. right, you're yeah. on, you know, that you're, you're a human. So, of course, you would say that, right? Like, you talk about that, that, uh, yeah. that charge that's been made against you. But um, I guess the real hubris is pretending that you're not a human and that that's not, right? I mean, like, I'm not sure how it's hubris to recognize, let, let's say, right, to your point, it's not that we're better than, than, than alpacas and it's not that we're better than the water. It, it's that, what bigger to me? What's the bigger um, hubris than to pretend we're the water? I, I don't know what that even like. Right. That seems like a hubris if you want to get on right. I mean, that's like we have a certain thing. We have certain things that we right non-judgmentally. Are. We're particular. Humans are particular, and that's fine. It's just like you know when when. Um, I remember some Christian woman went to the Dalai Lama when he was visiting New York. And she was like, oh, I love your thing. Oh, I want to be a Buddhist, a Buddhist. And he goes, well, what are you now? And she goes, I'm a Christian. He goes, oh, be a Christian. There's more than enough Buddhists already. You know? Right. And I kind of love that whole thing of you're this thing. Why not? Why be? It's beautiful that you want to, you know, find something in Buddhism. And I'm sure he didn't, you know, tell her not to read anything. But this this idea that, oh, that now we've got to become a rock or now I've got to become a tree. It's like, no, you know, I'm a human. And people always say to me, oh, you know, what if it's a virtual reality? What if this isn't real? What if it's that? Say, well, it's pretty damn good. I'm going to accept my experience of reality at face value because that's already overwhelming and confusing enough. I mean, look, in life, we often need to change to a different, you know, group in order to kind of push us forward. Like, so that's very important from a sociological, psychological, embodied perspective. It's like I get that sometimes we're with a group and in a situation where we need the the strength of a frame to pull us out of our current frame. So that's totally the case. I feel like you had Grant Morrison on the show a while ago and he talked about this really nice, like this infinite expanse that like, you know, that these he, he was he was saying that like it's not so much about what all these cauliflowers out there right I don't think you put it that way I'm putting it that way but it's like this infinite expanse in here the more we have access to that it does suggest like well you know when Dalai Lama says no no I mean you're fine where you are not because he's telling you that your current practice is fulfilling and opening and good but because he's trying to tell you that you have the entire universe right there Every morning when you wake up, and it's not, look, I don't want to be simplistic. People have illness. People have poverty. People have deal with systemic structures of all kinds of inequities in all kinds of ways. So I'm not trying to be simplistic that everyone wakes up on equal playing field. But part of the experience of being this human constellation, even if it's just sort of a constellation of atoms and nothing more sort of mysterious coming from on high or from behind or from in front, 
however this constellation works, it works in such a way that we can open up a different experience for ourselves on our best days in a way that doesn't actually need to take all of the direction from just this book or this movement or this, you know, tradition. Those are all tools. You're the you're the orchestra leader. Like you're the one in the in the orchestra um, place and like to to envision your world, even if there's not a lot of fancy tools around, you have a kind of capacity to change and open for yourself and then also for the world. And when we think about, oh, you know, something's, something's already been foretold that's coming down the pike or, oh, you know, whether it's pushing us from behind or pulling us from in front, that's, 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 non, that's not good. Those are two examples of cauliflower talk. Those are two examples that say, oh, something has already been scripted. I'm just this thing in the script and I'm being bandied around like on a wave that's taking me somewhere. I have absolutely no control over it. Now, look, of course, there are aspects we don't have control over. Yeah, but it's the big word. It's the big word in, in certainly in, in the tech theory worlds where I live. The big word these days is inevitable. It's Oy. inevitability, the inevitable blockchain, the inevitable digital, the inevitable AI, the inevitable merging of humans and machines. And my only response to that is nothing is inevitable. Everything's evitable. Everything's evitable. <laughs> Look, this isn't a simplistic sense that like, again, I go back to the vulnerability and fragility, which is where I kind of I start. I, I worry in the other direction that like certain kinds of uh, movements and people and whatever have a sense that everything is like, uh, you know, we could just start everything from scratch. We could go to another planet and start there. Right. I have no doubt we can do that. But that to me is not sufficiently vulnerable thinking about like, where are we? What, what are the current? What are, this is not about waking up in the morning and saying, you know what? I really would love to live a more fun life. So let me just pretend nothing is happening. And, you know, they were talking and said, oh, I should just like dig into my own well and just come up with whatever. So now instead of caring about anything or anyone, I'm just going to, you know, whatever. I'm just going to do my own thing and not worry about anything else. Yeah. We're not plankton. Like that's not part of, again, back to loving us. The, the idea that we wake up with a worry about the actual world that we have created. If you look at um, various traditions of critical theory, critical race theory, critical feminist, indigenous studies, and various kinds of whether it's from the sort of from decades ago or currently, what they all have in common is again this this razor edge. On the one hand, of course there's a bunch of stuff that has already happened. Like they would be criminal, honestly, to not take that as part of your daily experience. Like that's not okay to just, for me, it's not okay to just wake up and say, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna do my own thing and not worry about anything because look, I have an infinite well inside of me. That's not what we're, what I'm talking about. So the critical theory is about absolutely wrestling with the soup that you're already in that you probably had no no hand in right i mean i think a lot of sort of somewhat iffy uh political statements that come out during these complex times where people say like about racism they're like well i didn't do it why am i responsible for it you know that's something that maybe a three-year-old says like you know yeah. the, the idea that you personally did not invent slavery is a very 
thin argument for why you shouldn't worry about the systemic racism that is here. Like, I find that to be a very, very childish argument. It's it's similar when, you know, let's say if I ever, which I do not, I love my students, but like the idea that the, the idea that a student would come into philosophy of religion class one time, one student did this, it was exhausting for everyone who just kept saying, but there's no proof for the existence of God. It was like, oh my God, like, okay, we get that. Like, shut up. Like, I understand <laughs> there's no proof for the existence of God. If there was, I wouldn't be interested in God. How about that? Like, right. <laughs> every really interesting religious thinker does not think, that some of them a long time ago thought there was a proof for the existence of God. And in my most charitable reading of them, I assumed that they were like being a little bit poetic about that. There's no proof for the existence of God, obviously. That's not related to the to the point so the idea being that like when when somebody comes in and says oh well i i didn't i didn't myself i'm not responsible i, I didn't do slavery so why am i having to deal with it that, that, that's that's what a third grade like a three-year-old not even a third grader i'll give them more credit a three-year-old would say the idea that we are responsible for things that we did not create by our own hand is part of what we are right and it goes to the same kind of the weird refusal of people to engage in productive conversations about how do we work together to reduce the risk of COVID and things like that, that people are making arguments that are basically like, look, why do I have to stop at a red light? Uh, yeah. why, why do we have public libraries? It's like the, the, <laughs> the, oh. the, the basic foundations of organized life together are are actually being questioned by these kind of childlike stabs at a, a fantasy of independence from this interdependent reality that we're that we're enmeshed in right and here's that razor's edge which is on the one hand right you can't just be like oh what you know hey whatever on the other hand the whole premise of critical theory and this is what's so complex about the human condition it does have to take some of that sort of disruptive thinking because the whole premise of critical theories from the past and the current is that we have to be meta-aware that the status quos that we take for granted are actually like not to be taken for granted. We, we created them, and so therefore we can interrupt them, and then we can make these changes. Right. That's why I always talk about central currency or you know these things that we look at as almost conditions of nature. It's like, no, 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 no. We invented this with very particular rules, and we can invent a better one. So it's this complex vulnerability and agency together. I like to call it trembling agency. Right. You talk about in your work the ambiguity of the human condition which I love. The ambiguity is what makes us, and back to like, right, the idea of a reed, a river reed is very flexible. And again, it's not anything goes, but it's much more, you know, open. And the idea that there's ambiguity, here's another ambiguity, and this, this razor's edge. I don't like that analogy, obviously, because that's actually a very like sharp one, but it is meant to sort of indicate that there's two things going on at once, which are the opposite. So let's all work on a better uh, word than razor's edge to describe that. Uh, but, but the idea that we have to be, we vulnerably have to accept and see what we have already made. We can't just extricate ourselves from the past. And if we can, shame on us. It's not about just pretending that all the problems are gone because you personally can get away from them. That's, again, that's that's not behaving in the thing that we are. But on the other hand, it has to be like, wow, this is something that's pretty big. It's a wave that's pushing us along. And I can't wave a magic wand and make the wave go away. 
Um, and I can't sort of just will it away. And maybe part of it can never go away because it's so big. But what I have to do is daily interrogate it and find ways to to, in, to to change it, to make the changes, not just myself, work with the other people and even with myself and on the one-on-ones, whatever it means back to comportment, it's to be in the world in a way which a trembling agency, a vulnerable agency, a sense that there is so much out of control that has already happened that it's almost impossible to change and yet to live in ways that are committed to making that change anyway. That's actually a beautiful stopping point. That's really what the, that's the impulse for the next book that I'm doing. You know, my, my book about this kind of survivalist billionaires, the idea that they, they, that everything they do, it's like, this is the first time it's been done. It's a new, new thing. It's like, we're going to go to the new world again, as if coming to the new world last time, this wasn't a new world. There was people here <laughs> to them. It was an old world um, that, that, that sets this fantasy of like leaving slavery and all that legacy behind, all that does is bring up new nightmares like the Terminator movies, which are such obvious metaphors for, for the slavery that they still can't confront as a history thing. They've got to confront it as a speculative fiction scenario. Right. We have a desire for purity, which is dangerous because yeah. we can't, we, we both have to try to fix things as we also are aware that they're too broken to be fixed. And we don't even have words for that, that comportment. Right. It's a very specific comportment. I call it sleeve rolling in the face of impossibility. It's, it's a very specific modality. And it's not, by the way, it's again, it's neither optimism nor, nor pessimism. So again, my, my students joke, they call it pessimism because it's sort of, that's pessimism. And yeah, it's a little yeah. closer to pessimism, <laughs> but it's filled with optimism of a of a radical sort. And some different philosophers and theorists refer to like a radical hope or a kind of Ope, a radical hope is a kind of way of saying it, but unfortunately in American culture and must, much culture, hope tends to just mean like wishful thinking, which is back to silly optimism. And ut- utopianism. We, we, yeah. yeah. We utopianism. We need to somehow comport ourselves in a sleeve rolling in the face of impossibility, which is neither silly optimism nor the kind of pessimism that um, just sort of says, yeah, throw in the towel. It's, it can't be either of those. But I think... It may still have something to do with love. Uh, maybe. I think it has to do with responsibility. I okay. think it has to do with responsibility because love, look, you know what? It's interesting. And this is actually a research project of mine over the past 10 years, more on footnotes. And every time I get down, it becomes a rabbit hole. So maybe one day I'll write something on it. But I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, depends what we mean by love and what we mean by responsibility. Right. But I worry that sometimes in, in American culture or certain cultures, love can often, I don't know that it means this and it needs to mean this but i sometimes think that love can and i don't know that i don't I'm not saying you meant it this way but i think just in the culture because of a colleague of mine once insightfully mentioned that he thinks it actually arises with respect to like music and pop music and the way that it's been you know love has been love can often just tend to mean a version of kind of light um, cheap optimism uh, that like we're all just gonna hug it out and I, I don't I don't actually I don't have that hope not just because I'm pessimistic but because I don't actually think that's the thing that we need 
It's much harder than that. Don't don't tell like you know a woman who's making ten cents in the dollar that we're just gonna hug it out. Hug it like, out. That, that's not actually. <laughs> it's actually a form of oppression. You know, it's a form. Of, and again, that's Come the here, part honey. that we don't hug it yeah, out. The, yeah, let's no, hug it out. Exactly. Oh, you're yeah, feeling compressed. Uh, Your kids are being shot at and stuff. Oh, come it's here. It's all good. Come right. on. The, it generally <laughs> tends to be um, like those in the higher positions of power who tend to sort of think that we're going to just hug it out, which is an interesting. And again, this is liberalism has in its best moments, this deep sense that there is going to be this great way that it's all going to work out. Usually that's predicated on an unspoken sense that everyone is eventually just going to come around to my way of doing yeah. things and therefore we're going to be hugging it out. It doesn't tend to like sit with the fact that that is not even uh, at our deepest, darkest parts of us that want that sort of love in what it what it hides is that we we truly want everyone to be encompassable by our arms, right? If you even think of what a hug is, a hug is taking the thing in. We we deeply want things to sort of um, to be containable by ourselves. I mean, it's yeah, it, it, like it's, a it, pet, it, it, like a pet. And even if we don't mean <laughs> that consciously, what we're yeah. trying to do is we're trying to. I mean, I call it whack-a-moleing difference. But the point is, like that love image has a dark underside, which is we want to somehow feel the same with everyone. But usually what that secretly means is we want everyone to tame themselves to become what we're most comfortable with. Well, because you get, again, back to the beginning, you know, because you, you're driving towards a thing. It, and, and when you're driving towards a thing, it's either going to be the huggy thing or the killy thing, but it's got it. it's to get to the end of the story and what what we're about here really is like no 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 you don't have to end this thing at all can you try to actually stay with it because that's called like being alive and like you can drive towards things like it's not about back to justice you can't if you're just living in the present and right. just sort of getting what you need from like nature I don't see how that's consistent with justice you need to lean and you need to lean heavily right it, it's like you need to live your life with directions that are attuned to the needs of the time and to your own needs and to the needs of the other humans and all right. of those things but I would put the emphasis on the other like people like what we can't just sort of lean into our own thing and we can't not lean. We have what we are. We're not cauliflower. We're not chalk. But we are leaners, and we're leaners who have to learn how to lean in ways that are open to like sh shifting the way we lean. It's like about being a reed again. That river reed. It's not about not doing. It's about. It's a forward momentum that is always attuned to the to the possible needs to pivot, and that's it's a. There's no words for it in English, which is a telling. Well, thank you for telling me that. Absolutely. And thank you for being on Team Human. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm, uh, yeah, this is great, a great conversation as always, Douglas. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today, Professor Sarah Pesson. You can find out more about Sarah's work by going to sarahpesson.com. You can also find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.